Isaiah chapter 61, if you don't have a Bible with you, Bibles, like I said earlier, are underneath the seats in front of you, at least a few are, and there are some Bibles available in the back as well. Isaiah chapter 61, man, we are closing in on the final weeks of walking through this incredible, incredible book of the Bible. Today, I want to start off with uh, just a little bit of a... uh, acknowledgement of the fact that living here in the western United States is uh, fun when it comes to the food side of things, especially. If you ever visit the Midwest, outside of barbecue, you can toss the rest of it. It's just my thought. It's just kind of bland. Much of it is bland. If you, if you have people that visit from the Midwest and they come out here and you take them to Mexican food and different things like that, and, and they think Mexican food is Taco Bell. And so you have, to, you have to rearrange everything for them and go, no, that is not Mexican food. And you take them to a good Mexican food place or you take them to a good Indian food place or you take them to a good Filipino food place or if you take them to, you get the idea, right? All of these different spices of life are available in every corner of where we live and it's, it's zesty. Do you like that word? I like the word zest. It's like, oh yeah, give me that zesty food. Well, the reason I bring that out is that as Christians, we, we need to live life with that zest of joy. That, that just that, that thing that's just extra special. God's message to the world was uh, distilled into one essential drop by the angels in the birth of Jesus. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. That's Luke chapter 2, verse 10. That great joy, the mark of Christianity at its essence, that's significant because many times life stinks. Would anyone agree? What God offers is completely different. Good news of great joy for everyone. In this world, that is huge. When real people living real lives in this world demonstrate real joy, it's living proof that God saves sinners. There was a preacher in England in the 70s, 80s, early 80s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he explained in really neat words what the power of a joyful church is. He said this, as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important than that we who call ourselves Christian and who claim the name of Christ, should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. 
in a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women set apart. People characterized by a fundamental joy and a certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. When I read that this week, I was just like, you know, amen. When, when I hear you sing on a Sunday morning, and, and we are different in some churches in the fact that we don't, we don't crank the volume up up here to the nth degree, because quite honestly, it's not that we don't like loud. I love loud music. I can't hear a thing now because of loud music. But what I do love hearing is you sing. And what I think we need both, all of us be hearing is everyone sing. Because that's joyful. I don't care if you can't carry a tune. It's joyful. And one of the marks of early Christianity was joy. Joy living in a hard world. I was reading once again this week. I'm a history guy and I love reading what archaeologists find and what they've pieced together about the ancient world. One archaeologist said this, the apartment buildings of ancient Rome were so poorly built that, quote, the city was constantly filled with the noise of buildings collapsing. (laughs) Can you imagine you're just kind of two o'clock in the morning? What's that? That's Bill's place. Constantly filled with the noise of buildings collapsing or being torn down to prevent it. And the tenants of an apartment lived in constant expectation of the apartment coming down on their heads. So those those guys had the duck and cover thing going a long time before we did. And that was the setting, really, that the Roman Christians raised their families in. The classical world was not gleaming marble and flowing white togas and huge banquets. Uh, That was the royalty. That was the nobility. For everyone else, it was messy. The, The streets of Rome were deepest dark, 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 dark after nightfall. There was no medical care. No retirement benefits, no air conditioning, no refrigeration. But the early Christians living in that world stood out because God gave them a gift beyond that world. Overflowing acceptance through the cross of Christ. God's presence in their hearts. Practical wisdom for daily life. An endless enjoyment of God in heaven. And I think that's enough to make me joyful. And they thought so. Now, here's the truth. Just telling everyone in this room and everyone around the world to be happy doesn't work. Don't worry. Be happy. Yeah, that song doesn't work. That's actually annoying. It's one of the most annoying songs on the face of the planet. And the gospel doesn't do that. See, it gives us a hope beyond everything that beats us down. In 1 Peter 1, verse 8, 
the apostle Peter called it joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And that is Christ's gift to the world then. It's Christ's gift to the world today. His mission is to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to comfort all who mourn and anoint them with gladness so that the Lord may be glorified. And He has made us partners with Him on that mission. And all of that is found in Isaiah 61. Starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. Verse 2. To proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, before Jesus came, people had been wondering what God was up to. What was he really like? There had been 400 years or so of silence in terms of no recognized prophet declaring the will of God to the people. And you can imagine what people were thinking is like, hey, that is a lot of generations for God to be silent. Does God hate us? Is he sick of us? Will he come to judge? Does he care about what we go through down here on earth? And then God became a man. And he came. And we could see what he was like. And he came for the poor. He came for the afflicted. He came for the brokenhearted. He came for the captive. He came for sinners. As Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And how? He came to set them free. God became a man. We could see what he was like. And he was, quite frankly, far better and amazing than anyone had thought. And we have joy and thanksgiving due to the character of Jesus, the one that came, the character of the one who came to serve. Sometimes you see yourself and you see the yuckiness of your sin and you see that you have failed God and you think that God must be getting to the end of his rope with you. Does anyone ever feel like that? You're like, yeah, God has got to be ready to press the eject button on my life. And yet, even after that, you find yourself blessed. And all you can really think and say is, in a good way, who who is this God? Well, as we continue in verse 3, who is this God? He's the one to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a, a headdress instead of ashes. The oil of rejoicing instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of Yahweh that he may show forth his beautiful glory. He's saying, I'm here to comfort you. This message is as relevant today as it was in Jesus' day, as it was in Isaiah's day. 
Sin leaves people's lives shattered. Think of Texas yesterday. The sin of one person shattering the lives of many. Leaves hearts breaking. But, even in a day after a day like yesterday, think about the incredible comfort that Jesus brings people. That this isn't it. This isn't it. And that on top of that, if you do give your life to Jesus... and accept this wonderful gift of salvation, what, what does Jesus give us? We see it here. He gives people hope and, and changes lives. People trapped by chemical addictions, enslaved by um, just junky stuff online, struggling with emptiness, uh, struggling with depression, uh, people that are, are darkly alluded towards uh, hurting themselves. And Jesus stepped right in the middle of all of that, which happened then and happens now. Jesus steps in with light and hope and grace and forgiveness, and he changes everything, and he brings joy where there was grieving and sorrow and brokenness. Amen? Jesus alone can't do, Jesus alone is the only one that can do that. Jesus steps in. And the evidence of that is that so many different memorial services that I have done over the past 30 years, even to a Christian funeral and memorial service, there is such a big difference in that memorial service than in the one that's not a believer. And the difference is joy. Christians don't grieve like those who have no hope. We, we actually walk out of this life mocking death. And we sang one of the songs today because I knew we were going to share this section of scripture death where is your victory death where is your sting now the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ paul's like yeah bring it on we don't grieve like those who grieve with no hope. I don't know if I've shared this story before, but I was called about 15, 20 years ago. It's kind of fuzzy date-wise. So a family called and said, hey, um, we're going to do this memorial service for a family member uh, at a funeral home, and we're not church-going people, uh, and we were, but we thought we should have a pastor or something. And this was like two hours before it was supposed to start. I was like, hey, first of all, you guys are really good at planning, one. 
But I was like, okay. And so they're like, hey, can you come down? It was in Santa Ana. I'll give you that. And, you know, hey, it's at a funeral home. Santa Ana, the funeral home didn't have anyone available. You guys, your church is close. I was like, close? It was like 30 minutes away, but okay. And, you know, can you come down and just, just share some of God's word or something, whatever you guys do? It was exactly that. I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so I, I go there and, you know, and, and there's definitely some things that, that you want to point people to remember, you know, the, the life of the person that's passed away. And hopefully there's some good things that they can remember about that and, and different stuff. But I, I walked into a hornet's nest. So I'm about maybe four and a half seconds into, you know, hey, we're here today to remember. And this one lady pops up and is like, he was a bleep, 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 bleep. I'm all, amen. <laughs> and this other lady stands up and starts yelling at her. And I was like, man, it was like the Hatfields and the McCoys. I was like, duck and run for cover. And it was a ex-wife and an ex-lover, and it was it, it was it, everything awful possible. And I was like, "Dude." <laughs> and they calmed down after a few minutes. They actually were separated by family members and taken out. And I was like, well, "How do I redeem this?" And I just was, you know, there's obviously no one really in the room had any idea about Christianity. So I just decided to share the gospel. And I had four or five people talk to me afterwards that day and accepted the Lord. Because there was no, uh, truthfully, truthfully, there was no hope in that room. But if you shine the light of Christ, it's amazing what will happen. Two days ago, we set up a fair tent at the L.A. County Fair for Child Evangelism Fellowship. We do it every year. I told the crowd on Thursday night, I was like, here I am, I'm 53 years old, and I'm driving a U-Haul down to set up a fair booth for a bunch of kids. And we're setting up all of this castle stuff and everything so they can hear a Bible story. And truthfully, none of those kids are going to the L.A. County Fair to hear a Bible story. And so they're walking. And if you go to the L.A. County Fair, which I strongly suggest not going, um, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> Pepper Street. Is where this booth is at, and we've got it with all of the different, uh, if you know anything about the wordless book that we use to share the gospel, it's been used by missionaries for hundreds of years. Um, it's all set up and everything like that, and I knew it was supposed to rain, and we set it up before the rain, and I was like, man, I hope it stays together. Uh, so Saturday, I, so Friday night was the first night of the fair. Saturday, I, I text the person that did the first night. Hey, how'd it go? And she's like, well, it, was, it was incredible. Oh, really? She's like, yeah, the fair booth was a mess. We had to re-put everything up because the water went through the whole thing. 
from the storm. But she's like, you know, Satan was trying to get rid of our booth, but we had a couple hundred kids except the Lord the first night. Hope. Jesus alone can do that stuff. So we don't grieve. Jesus provides for those who grieve and and mourn. And Isaiah 61 predicts the comfort that Jesus will bring to a mourning world, a world ripped apart and ruined by sin and death. And Jesus quoted this passage when he was saying, all right, ministry starting. And he steps into the synagogue in Nazareth. You can read it in Luke chapter 4. And he starts reading from the scroll there in Isaiah and he, he says, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and, and, and freedom to the prisoners. And he stopped. He stopped after he said, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He didn't finish it. He didn't finish that statement from Isaiah. And you're like, Why? He didn't mention the day of vengeance. Now, some people will say, well, see, Jesus didn't, you know, he came just to share grace and forgiveness and love. He didn't say day of vengeance, but the day of vengeance happens on his return. So the day of vengeance has not happened yet. Matter of fact, we still live in the year of the Lord's favor We're still in that period. But I do want to make mention of the last part of that verse, which is a reason to rejoice. God comes alongside with us. He is with us. His presence and and companionship strengthens us. And we know that there's justice. And it's coming. In order to get there, though, there's this great exchange And we see that in verse 3 that I read. The gospel is not about self-improvement. It's not about being the best you. It's not about trying to pull yourself up from the bootstraps of your life and, and just keep going. It's about exchanging what God is for what you are not. The greatest of all exchanges is given in this section of Scripture. And Paul echoes that in 2 Corinthians where he says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our verse here in Isaiah has three exchanges. Take a look. Three exchanges in that verse 3 that governs a person's emotional and mental well-being. Garland for ashes, gladness for mourning, praise instead of heaviness. These figures suggest the difference between a funeral and a wedding. At a funeral service, the Jewish people put ashes on their heads and mourned and lament. And at a wedding, they wore beautiful bridal wreaths and garments of praise. They would also put on oil. And we 
We play a part in this, though. If all we ever do is think is about what is wrong and we moan to God and others about our condition, then it's quite likely that the spirit, spirit of heaviness is still within us and remains. We need to put on the garment of praise. Martin Luther said it like this, your thinking must be turned. Your thinking must be turned so that you can say Christ lives. You see, God gives comfort, but He doesn't want us to remain spiritual babies our whole life either. He wants us to encourage ourselves in Him just as King David had to learn to do. David was greatly distressed at different times because the people spoke of even at one time stoning him for all of the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters, it says. But David strengthened himself. How? In the Lord his God. The spirit of heaviness is prevalent in our age, isn't it? So many are weighed down. So many are anxious. So many are depressed. So many are bombarded with pressure and busyness and stress. And King David knew of all of that spirit of heaviness. And he experienced what it was like, though, to be freed from it. In Psalm 40, it says in verse 1, a psalm of David, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. It's good news what Jesus has done. It is good news, this exchange. And gives us a new song to sing. Songs of praise. It's a reason for thankfulness and it creates then this priestly, righteous people that, that become builders. Look at verse 4 now. Then they will rebuild the ancient waste places. They will raise up the former desolations and they will make new the ruined cities. Man, talk about all the ruins that are in your life. <laughs> You're like, yeah, there's a bunch of ruins in our homes, in our world. God promises to give back everything sin has ruined. And He does it through us. The mourners in verse 3 become the repair experts in verse 4. It's extreme home makeover 4.0. Isaiah uses the language of rebuilding because the Jewish people literally were going to rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem after the exile. But that's only a token of a deeper restoration for all of us. We need this. We have the devastations of many generations in all over the world, all over homes everywhere. That's what sin does. 
Sin creates victims. Had a person say just recently, oh, sin, sin shouldn't divide. And I was like, that's what sin does. Sin divides. It divides people. It divides countries. It divides, just name it. It creates victims. And you know what victims feel entitled to do? Retaliate. Which creates more victims. More sin. More victims. And it's this this endless path that Satan just absolutely loves to see. Ever since Adam fell, sin has been spreading a culture of death. We'll never understand ourselves and our surroundings without the background of understanding sin. It is so sad to see people walking around today. You can look on Twitter, you can look wherever. They're like, I just don't understand what's going on. And it's like, because you don't have, you don't have a frame of reference. This world is not normal. Everything, my friends, is broken. We have to start there. When Paul talks in Ephesians chapters 2 through 4 about the unity of the church, he doesn't start with being just one in Christ. He goes all the way back and he says, we are one in sin. You got to get the framework right. You, me, the other guy, and the guy across the street, and the guy across the world. We've been one all the time. We started one in sin. And Christ offered the one way back through His blood, the one blood that redeems. And when you accept Him, the one, you become one in Christ. And you become then one body, one rejoicing in Him, one hope. So here's the radical proposal in all of this. And I know I'm preaching to the choir for the most part. Maybe some of you today are here and you're like, I don't know where I stand on any of this. Let me tell you what Isaiah is getting at and what Jesus is getting at. We need a Savior. Our world is always looking for some sort of savior. Oh, if we just had the right laws, everything would be right and perfect, right? If we just had the right type of whatever, fill in the blank, it would solve everything. It doesn't. You see, we need a savior. The only person in history of the human race who qualifies for that is Jesus Christ. He came to recreate a culture of life. There was a governor yesterday that threw rocks at some of the people in Texas saying, you've created a culture of death. And I found it interesting that that governor said that considering in his state, he is creating a sanctuary for abortion. I'm like, hold it. You're saying you're for life when you are 
making it possible for millions of babies to be killed every year? I mean, do you get the picture? It's all, it's all bad. It's all broken. And Isaiah's point in verse 4 is that only gospel-liberated people can restore. That's our mission. God says in verse 5 and 6 that the mission is heroic and will be perceived as heroic if we live out the mission correctly. In verse 7, the mission is joyful with a joy that will last forever. Let's read 5, 6, and 7 right now. The desolations from generation to generation, we talked about that. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers, but you will be called the priests of Yahweh. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their glories you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of dishonor, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land, everlasting gladness will be theirs. The mission of Jesus and his church will be rebuilding the ruins where every noble human salvation deals with those fallen into ruins. Why can we be confident that as Christians, we can be rebuilders then. Well, Peter was. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. This is why we're confident, everyone. You are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You see where he's going? He went back to Isaiah 61 and said, here's the picture who is that? And Peter's like, it's the church. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, are you living today in that way where you go, huh, this world's crazy, it's sad, it's, it's terrible what's going on, but am I living like God has called me to live? Because I am part of the people of God. That's got some power to it. Verse 8, For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering. And in truth, I will give them their recompense and cut an everlasting covenant with them. Then their seed will be known among the nations and their offspring in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the seed whom Yahweh has blessed. God is making a commitment of himself to us. You've got to remember that word justice that you see there in verse 8 means more than just some legal 
You know, we're going to get things right. It means the way human life and human society are supposed to be. God loves wholeness. He loves to see his kingdom coming and he will be, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? God hates the robbery and the wrong of the world as it is today, distorting what it means to be me, be you. This, who's, this is who God is. He loves what is right and he hates what is wrong with all the intensity of a divine being. It's unthinkable that God would fail to keep his covenant. So then invest yourself in the new world God is building. How many of you look at your stock portfolios, your 401ks, your 403bs, your IRAs, all of your investments, and you, you, you ponder something? If you, if you are an investment person at all, Part of it is you manage risk, right? Part of it is there's risk because there's reward. I'm not going to throw all of my money in a 0.4% savings account. It's good to have some money over there. But what I need to be doing is I'm investing, right? I'm investing and I'm taking a risk sometimes. When I was in fourth grade, I had one my best friend in the world was a guy named Bly Hostetler. My other best friend was a guy named Eddie Gonzalez. So Eddie and Bly got together, and there was this new computer company that was offering stocks for, for like a buck a stock. And so they both bought 500 shares of stock in Apple. <laughs> Bly and Eddie now live somewhere uh, on their own private islands. <laughs> and you know what I said? That's nah, too risky. I mean, who's going to buy computers? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't. But there was, there was risk and there's been reward with that, right? God says, I will make you new. You will be the people of God. Is that worth the risk? When, when it says in Matthew... Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Is that worth the risk? With the blessings? I think so. And our section ends with these words, and starting in verse 10. Because this is what it's about, that risk and the reward and the saving power of the anointed one. I will rejoice greatly in Yahweh. My soul will rejoice in my God, 
For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its branches and as a garden causes the things sown in it to branch out, so Lord Yahweh will cause righteousness and praise to branch out before the nations." This is Jesus actually speaking here. He is delighting in God's strategy. Isaiah 53.3 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, but not now, not here. He's rejoicing. God has clothed him with the garments of salvation and covered him with the robes of righteousness. And what does that mean? Well, back in chapter 59, verse 17, God clothed himself with righteousness and salvation. In other words, God asserted himself, displayed himself on behalf of righteousness, righteousness and salvation in this world. But here we find that he exerts and and. and He exerts all of that through and resolves everything through the Messiah. He saves us through Christ. And Isaiah sees something. He sees the Messiah enjoying saving us. The joy of a wedding celebration is pictured. The fruitfulness of a garden sprouting with new life. Jesus has been doing that now for 2,000 years. And he's only just begun. Through Jesus Christ, God launched into the sad world an outpouring of joy that will leave the nations in awe. And on this very day in history, at this very moment, Jesus is on the move. It's a little kid's series of books where there was a lion that was always on the move. Well, that's Jesus. And he's doing God's saving will all over the world. And he's doing it with joyful enthusiasm. And that should be so compelling for us to join in. To say, I'm all in. It was for Paul. In Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, he said, more than that, so he's, I love it when Paul says those little phrases like that, so you just got a picture, okay, anytime he says more than that, all right, more than what I just said that was really cool to begin with, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. And we know when we look at 
what this righteousness looks right like with, with Christ. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And then it says, when we walk with Jesus, when we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, who do we look like? Jesus. What do we receive? His power. His glory. And we should, first of all, when we apply all of this, we should understand, first of all, we should just stand in awe sometimes. At the amazing moment when Jesus stood up in Luke chapter 4, in the synagogue in Nazareth, read the first part of Isaiah 61 and said, hey guys, that was me. Worship Him. We need to every day say, thank you God for being such a God to figure out all of this before the foundation of the world, predicted it centuries before it happened, and even Jesus then stepping into time precisely when he was supposed to and said, today you're hearing scripture fulfilled. Praise him, number one. Number two, meditate on this amazing grace that's been given to us that leads to him, that elevates degraded sinners like you and me from the dungeons and satanic dungeons of darkness to instead be under him. Kings and queens of glory, princes and princesses in his kingdom. That's incredible. Never get tired of thanking Him for saving you from the day of vengeance. We were covered with stinking, yucky clothes, but instead we now have this rich garment of praise now on us. Let me close with this. I read a story the other day, and maybe you guys have seen a picture about this in the past. There was a man who visited a pub and was surprised to see three men and a dog playing cards. After watching for a little while, he had to ask the obvious, can the dog actually play cards? And the answer was, yes, he sure can. And the guy asking was like, wow, that's incredible. And the guy at the table with the dog playing cards says, not, not. Not really. He's not really good. Whenever he gets a good hand, he wags his tail. (laughs) But that writer went on to say this, you and I are holding the best hand ever dealt as believers. We are God's own elect. How can we not help but show our happiness? In our thanksgiving, we have a lot to be thankful for. As we see things happening all over the world, we need to be, so to speak, the ones sitting at the table wagging our tail. I am mindful that we live in a 
hard age, and I would actually say that I think it's harder than ever before. I believe that. You, me, the person across the street, down the road, and in towns and villages and cities everywhere around the world, we're, we get tired, we get weary, and there is sometimes a spirit of heaviness that weighs us down because of the hardship and the difficulty and the pain and the sorrow that we see. So we need to be pray, praying for people that are experiencing those difficulties, but also praying and saying thank you. That in the midst of that, that we can sing a new song, a song of praise to our God. The garment of praise then that's on us that replaces that spirit of heaviness. And so that's the second thing. Meditate on that amazing grace. Third, yearn, yearn to become what the text says we will be. Yearn to become a mighty oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. Jesus was very clear that those of us that are Christians are to be growing and producing fruit. Grow up in Christ. Don't be blown back and forth by false teaching, by lusts, by temptations. Don't be weak. You are the people of God. Resolve to be holier than you were yesterday. And how do you do that? By living in the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be the ones as Christians saying, I want to be an oak. I want to be rooted in the Word and growing in Him. I don't want to be weak. I'm going to be strong in Him. Give me the strength to fight. When you drive from here through to Santa Clarita, there's areas where there's been so many different fires. But it's pretty wild to see all of those oak trees that are still alive. They're strong. Don't mess with that oak. Now, some of those oaks, obviously, all of them will die eventually. But the picture is what helps us. In Christ, we never die. And we should be the ones that are getting stronger and stronger in a world that's getting wilder and wilder. And more and more people will see the difference. And we'll ask you the simple question, why do you have joy? And you should say, I have Christ. Let's pray.